Fear and Loathing in the Wasteland, The Happy Bureaucracy, Book 2, by M.P. Fitzgerald, narrated by Gary Bennett. Author's Note Strewn between drug use, groin malice, and cursing on a level tantamount to sacrilege are even more gratuitous mentions of bureaucracy. These bureaucratic references may not be for the weak of heart. Also, child endangerment. Did I mention child endangerment? Chapter 10 What is better than a group of men who enslave others waking up to a high-explosive grenade being chucked into one of their laps? Why, that would be two high-explosive grenades. Rabia was, after all, an incredibly giving woman. The grenades were hard workers, sending shrapnel, flesh, and ash upward and outward. The concussive explosions reverberated and echoed through the stone horseshoe. Rabia had her hand cannon out and ready the moment they hit the ground, and her feet carried her behind one of the mutant cars. Those that survived fired wildly. She was still outnumbered, but the blasts had done much to disorient the waking men, and the four that were left without any mortal wounds did not seem to know where she was. Rabia had unwittingly cornered herself. The remaining slavers were between her and the exit. Climbing would likely get her shot, and she was still outgunned and outnumbered. It was now or never. She had to take advantage of the slavers' confusion while she could, or else she would have four guns pointed at her at once. Rabia emerged from her cover and dispatched the slavers exactly how she read, from left to right and in a rush. Two of her bullets hit their marks, and the slavers she shot fell to the ground, sending clouds of ash into the air as they did so. The third shot missed, and the slaver that it was meant for started firing in her direction. The fourth had disappeared, lost to Rabia sometime between when she found cover and fired her shots. Rabia crouched down and kept her back to the mutant car. She could probably take out the goon that was shooting at her. She was quick, but the fourth man could be anywhere. Killing nine out of ten was impressive, but it meant little if the tenth got to her in the end. She had to take out the immediate threat first, and pray to whatever god that was left that she had not offended that she would find the fourth soon. She dropped to the ground, rolled to the side, and pulled the trigger. The large hand cannon erupted its payload straight into the man's brain. A look of surprise was the last encore for his face, and he fell to his knees as blood leaked from his head. Rabia sniffed from the cocaine. Fucking cocaine. Her heart was beating faster than a heavy metal drummer. It was hard to tell if this was from the drug or from the adrenaline. Maybe both. The stillness around her was ominous, and once more the darkness seemed impenetrable. The fourth man was out there, maybe doing what she was now, listening. Maybe he's a scum-sucking coward, she thought. Maybe the Nazi swine bastard ran away. Her instincts told her this was a laughable fantasy. He was out there, somewhere. The darkness had suddenly become her greatest asset and her greatest enemy. It would conceal her just as perfectly as it would conceal him. Rabia let out a long but quiet sigh, sending out a stream of fogged breath. She noticed for the first time since snorting the drug that it was cold outside. Her march up the mountain had kept her warm, but now... Quiet and still, she felt the oppressive chill. She 
badly wanted a cigarette. Still, she heard nothing. Cautiously, she stalked the grounds of the rock enclosure, grateful that she was already familiar with it. This was no advantage, but an even plain field was almost as good. The stark white of the ash clashed with the crimson of blood in the center of the camp. There were no signs of the fourth man. Either he was behind or in a car, or he wasn't in the enclosure at all. The options narrowed down. Robbie's confidence began to swell. But then she heard the report of a gun. The single shot rang out supreme over the pregnant silence, but the echoes of the enclosure made it impossible to pinpoint. Robbie's fight-or-flight instinct chose flight, and she ran to the other side of the outcropping of cars. There, laying dead in a pile of ash, was the fourth man. She did not immediately see his killer, because his killer was just simply too short. Across from the fourth man's cadaver was the silent and small figure of dinner, holding the pistol Robbie had given to her for defense. What in the name of all that is holy are you doing out here? Robbie demanded, lowering her pistol. Dinner did the same, and her small face was covered in sadness. I got lonely, Dinner pleaded. I was scared. So that is what she had heard behind her during her hike. If the ash had muted Robbie's footfalls, it most certainly silenced the light feet of Dinner. I told you to say put, didn't I? This was dangerous, Dinner. You could have died, Robbie said, surprised to find more worry than anger in her voice. But apparently the child could not tell the difference. Tears threatened the corners of Dinner's eyes. I'm sorry. I was scared and you were gone and... Robbie interrupted Dinner's plea with something that surprised even herself. She hugged the child tightly. Dinner had probably saved Robbie's life, of which she was grateful but the harm that could have come to her was not worth it. Don't you ever do that again, Robbie said, as Dinner hugged her back. That was a pretty good shot, though, she said, unable to not admire the handiwork that might have saved her life. Like Robbie, Dinner was born into a world of misery. You had to pick up some unsavory skills and habits to thrive. Robbie just hoped that Dinner would not thrive too well, as she herself had. No one deserved those memories. With the remnants of human life strewn across blood-soaked ash and the hours getting late, it was time for that awkward part of post-apocalyptic survival, when one has to scavenge through the remains and goods of who they just killed. There was very little dignity in the United Wastes. You didn't just kill. You robbed and you stole, so that tomorrow you would have to steal less. This bout of rummaging through dead people's property had more of an added benefit than usual, however, because this was also information gathering. There was still little doubt in Robbie's mind that these slavers were trying to flank the tax army and surprise attack, but the small numbers to do so were puzzling. Her priorities when robbing the dead usually went like this. Find water, then food, and then drugs. When she was done searching for those things, she would scavenge for ammo, or, failing that, scavenged for new weapons, and finally, the miscellaneous stuff like toilet paper and tampons. The slavers' canteens were full, but judging by the size of the tumors littering their bodies like cancerous goose flesh, it was probably not potable, and definitely irradiated. 
That was a strike. So Rabia fished in the pockets of one of the bodies not mangled by the grenades for car keys. This part was always far more intimate than she liked. If she were British, she would have cleared her throat and looked away. If she were Canadian, she would probably apologize to the corpse. But Rabia was American, so naturally she made a dick joke. A lot of room in here, she snickered to herself. She did not find keys in the first pocket, but she did find something odd. Money. Paper money. Five twenties to be precise. No one, save for the IRS, still dealt with actual money. The official currency of the United Wastes was fear, but slightly below that was a barter system based on calories and bullets. Rabia got paid in dollars, but she was a full-time employee of the IRS, where the money was actually useful and used inside of the bunker. This was, well, baffling. Still, she had used money before working at the IRS, but it was usually to wipe her ass with. This was not an uncommon practice, as there was still a lot of the stuff around the United Wastes, and it had to be used for something. She let it go. There was always something weird that would pop up when scavenging. Sometimes she would find sex toys, and sometimes she would find silly putty. People were unpredictable, and so were the items in their pockets. But when she checked another body, and found dollars in his pants as well, she knew that this was not a coincidence. These men were paid this money. But who paid them? The Internal Revenue Services of the United Wastes dealt almost exclusively in two-dollar bills. They had an entire vault of them that was sealed during the Cold War. These men had been paid in twenties and fives and singles. The money could conceivably be from the IRS, switching the bills up in a bad attempt to cover their tracks, which, knowing the agency as she did, was not that far-fetched but that was almost giving them too much credit. If the IRS was dumb enough to give them paper money, which she was sure they were, they would probably just give them the standard $2 bill. It wasn't just in their pockets. When Robbie had finally found some keys and opened the trunk of one of their mutant cars, she found more of it. Twenties, hundreds, but no $2 bills. Robbie lit a cigarette, letting the calming effects of nicotine clear her mind. Was it possible that these men were not flanking the army, but were actually trying to pay their taxes? Maybe they hoped the IRS would spare them if they got paid, and would let them go while the tax army laid siege upon their former home? But why be so sneaky about it? No, these men were armed, and the additional high-caliber automatic weapons she found in the trunk with the money was not something you took with you if you planned on surrendering. Through the hustle and fury of her last visit to Slaver City, she never found the time to scavenge those she killed as she did now. Was it possible that they all had money in Slaver City? A puff of smoke, the taste of tobacco, a stealthy bump of cocaine. Rabia remembered the details of the huge book they had stolen. Slaver City dealt with individual buyers, but a good majority of the people listed as sold were bought up by main client, could they be infusing an actual and legitimate legal tender-based economy into Slaver City? Rabia released smoke from her lungs and felt the end of her shorts tugged by dinner. The little girl looked up at her with beautiful and pleading eyes. Can I borrow your knife? she asked. Sure, kid. 
Have fun, Robbie said as she handed the knife over. Dinner scurried off toward the man that she had killed and began hacking off the man's finger to add to her necklace. It was adorable. Robbie had almost lost her train of thought, and though being interrupted did not help, it was most certainly the fault of the cocaine that she nearly had. These details were troubling, and not just as a conundrum. Only the IRS was big enough to deal in money. If the slavers thought it was useful, were paid in it, and used it, then something out there was at least as big as the IRS. What would happen if that something showed up? This was almost not fair. Her mission was simple. Save Arthur from assassination and certain death. It was not just her job to keep her partner safe, but her duty to her friend and lover. Yet bigger and bigger things kept threatening to derail that. This was supposed to be simple. Yet on the way, she had to dispatch a surprise attack. And now she had to deliver intelligence. The surprise attack would have been bad. But whoever paid them was worse. The IRS could deal with the slavers. The tax army would certainly lay them to waste. But what if main client showed? The list of people and things trying to kill Arthur was being updated by the hour. And Rabia hated it. Dinner finished her grim arts and crafts. She was definitely a local. The area loved fingers as trophies. Rabia, whose caravan dealt mostly in the north before making their way here, grew up on scalps. That was a real waster's trophy. The fingers were quaint, but why not let the little one have her fun? Dinner retied the necklace before putting it back on. The child was dexterous enough at her age to kill, but not to tie something behind her neck. With this done, she looked over at Rabia. What's wrong? She asked, and Rabia became suddenly aware that she was wearing her dreads and deductions on the outside. Rabia took one last puff on her cigarette, then put it out on the side of the mutant car. Nothing, she said. There was no more time. Listen, she continued. How about we break some rules tonight? Dinner looked up at Rabia with quizzical eyebrows. Okay she replied with a touch of excitement. This was stupid. This went against everything she was taught. This was dangerous. Why don't you and I go for a night drive? We hope you have enjoyed A Happy Bureaucracy by M.P. Fitzgerald, narrated by Gary Bennett. Text copyright 2019 by M.P. Fitzgerald. Production copyright 2021 by M.P. Fitzgerald.